Chapter 2 of The Mentor 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Myra Parker. The Mentor 2 by Various 2. The Mentor Rembrandt, Volume 4, Number 20. Serial Number 120. December 1st, 1916, by John Van Dyke, Professor of the History of Art, Rutgers College. Rembrandt. Early Years. 1. Sometimes it is difficult to learn the truth about a great man. This is particularly so in the case of one who lived three centuries ago, for in those days people were not as careful to keep records as they are today. For years the great painter Rembrandt was regarded as having been ignorant, boorish, and avaricious. Fables making him out to be such a character sprang up without any foundation. It is only within the last fifty years that we have come to know the true Rembrandt, and to realize that he had profound sympathy, a powerful imagination, and originality of mind, and that he was a poet as well as a painter, an idealist, and also a realist. He has justly been called the Shakespeare of Holland. Rembrandt Harmans van Rijn, for that is his full name, was born at Leiden, a town near Amsterdam in Holland, on July 15, 1605. Leiden is famous in history as the birthplace of many great artists and other men of renown. Rembrandt's home overlooked the River Rhine. He was the son of a well-to-do miller, and his parents were ambitious that Rembrandt enter the law, for his older brothers had been sent into trade. At that time, Holland was entering upon her great career of national enterprise. Science and literature flourished, poetry and the stage were cultivated by her people, and art was made welcome in every town, large and small. So Rembrandt, after he had been sent to the high school at Leiden, decided to become a painter, for already within him he felt the first urgings of genius. Accordingly, when Rembrandt was only twelve or thirteen years old, his father allowed him to become a pupil of Jacob von Swanenberch, a painter of no great ability, who, however, enjoyed some reputation because he had studied in Italy. Three years later, the boy was placed under Peter Lastman of Amsterdam, who was a much better artist and teacher. Authorities differ as to how long Rembrandt remained with Lastman. One says that he was his pupil until he was 19 years old. Another believes that he studied with him for only six months. At any rate, sometime after 1623, Rembrandt returned to the home of his parents at Leiden. During these first years of his artistic life, Rembrandt worked hard. He painted pictures of almost everyone he saw, beggars, cripples, and in short, every picturesque face and form of which he could get hold. Life, character, and special lighting effects were his principal concern. Frequently, he used his mother for a model, and from these portraits, we can trace his strong resemblance to her. The young artist also liked to paint his father and sisters, and by the number of portraits he painted of himself, we can see that from the very beginning he worked hard to master every form of expression, learning to draw the human face as it appeared, not only to the casual observer, but also to one who read the character within. It is said that during his lifetime Rembrandt painted nearly sixty portraits of himself. 
Time went by, and the young artist of Leiden was attracting the attention of art lovers in the great metropolis of Amsterdam. Some of them urged him to move there, and feeling that he was now strong enough to stand alone, Rembrandt rented a large house in Amsterdam and removed there in 1631. He divided the upper part of his house into small studios, and there he worked and taught. His pupils were many and from wealthy families. From this teaching, Rembrandt derived a large income. Fortune smiled upon him. At one bound, he leaped into the position of the leading portrait painter of Amsterdam. Numerous commissions for portraits flowed in upon him, and during the first few years of his residence there, he painted at least 40. When he was only 26 years old, in 1632, he painted The Anatomy Lesson, a picture that made an enormous sensation and holds its place today as one of Rembrandt's masterpieces. The year 1634 was one of the happiest in Rembrandt's life. He was then at the beginning of a successful artistic career, and it was at that time that he married Saskia van Ullenburg, a beautiful Frisian maiden. Saskia brought him love and wealth. Eight years of prosperity and sunshine followed their union. Rembrandt and his wife were a joyous pair. They had four children, a boy and two girls, who died in infancy, and a son, Titus, who grew to man's estate. The Master Painter 2. The year 1640 marks the beginning of what may be termed the second period of Rembrandt's life and work. It was during these years that success and happiness were his. From then until 1654, Rembrandt worked in what has been called his second manner. His art grew in power, and the coldness of his first manner had disappeared. He had passed through a period of exaggerated expression and had come to a truer, calmer form of painting. It is interesting to compare his own portrait painted in 1640 with the earlier portraits of himself. This painting portrays a man strong and robust, with powerful head, determined chin, and keen, penetrating eyes. This was the Rembrandt of that period, the man confidently independent and careless as to his popularity as an artist. Rembrandt had now many pupils. He had bought a house in Amsterdam and had placed in it a great collection of paintings and engravings, at that time, the artist was living a life of simple domesticity, happy with his wife and children. His friends were many, and his interests were large. Rembrandt's mother died in 1640, and two years later, the great sorrow of his life came upon him. His wife, Saskia, died. This changed everything for him. The events of his latter days are clouded in obscurity. The terms of Saskia's will are interesting, in that they may throw some light upon a later action of the artist, which will be related further on. She left her money to their son Titus, with Rembrandt as sole trustee, and with full use of the money until he should marry again, or until the marriage of Titus. It was in 1642 also that Rembrandt painted his most famous picture, the Night Watch. This is one of the landmarks of Rembrandt's career. However, it is not a night watch at all, but a call to arms by day, and more properly should be named the Day Watch. 
The artist's life was changed after the death of his wife. No longer does he appear to have been the buoyant, carefree painter and art lover. There is a pathetic sadness in many of his works done at this time. This is well illustrated in his pictures of the Holy Family, a subject which was a favorite with him during this period of his life. One reason for Rembrandt's unhappiness was his waning popularity. The Night Watch, which was painted to order as a collection of portraits in one composition, did not prove satisfactory to his customers. Some of them complained of being put in the background and obscured. Naturally, the artist could not give places of prominence to every person in the picture. Not understanding this, however, these people took offense at his disposition of the characters and transferred their patronage elsewhere. It was at this time that Rembrandt did a great deal of landscape painting, and genius that he was, he made a success of it. It is to this period that the famous painting, The Mill, is ascribed. But though he was still the great artist, a cloud of adversity was slowly coming over Rembrandt's life. Evil days were at hand. Last Years 3. During the last part of the 17th century, money was scarce in Holland. Long-continued wars and civil troubles had worn out the country. Financial depression overwhelmed Amsterdam, and in addition to this, the taste in art changed, and Rembrandt and his pictures were neglected. Most of Rembrandt's money was tied up in his house and in his large collection of valuable pictures, and when his paintings ceased to be in demand, he was forced to borrow money. Very little is known of the artist's life at this time. He was living with his servant, Hendrik Schastoffels, and in 1654, a child was born to them. To her, Rembrandt gave the name of Cornelia, after his much-loved mother. It has been asserted that he married Hendrikshe, but it is probable that he did not, for in such a case, the money left by Saskia would have gone at once to her son, Titus, according to the will. In 1656, Rembrandt's financial affairs went crashing down to ruin. By a process of law, his house and land were transferred to Titus. But as his son was still a minor, Rembrandt was allowed to remain in charge of Saskia's estate. And then ruin stared him in the face. In July 1656, Rembrandt was declared bankrupt, and an inventory of his property was ordered. Two years later, the larger part of his collection of etchings and drawings was sold. The sum realized was only a small fraction of their value. Rembrandt, driven from his house, stripped of everything he possessed, without friends or money, took a modest lodging in Amsterdam. The city which once had acclaimed him as its greatest portrait painter now passed him by and left him alone to wait for death. During all these dark years, however, Rembrandt was painting some of his greatest pictures. Even amid the ruins of his affairs, he could go calmly on working, and for this he deserves the highest respect. Among the works of this time are the portrait of Jan VI, the Adoration of the Magi, and John the Baptist Preaching in the Wilderness. At the same time, he continued to paint his own portrait, but in these pictures of the artist in his old age, we see a man broken by misfortune. 
titus rembrandt's only son had married he died in sixteen sixty eight leaving one child a year later on october eighth sixteen sixty nine rembrandt himself passed away in the livre mortuaire of the wester kirk in amsterdam appears the following simple entry relating to his death tuesday eighth october sixteen sixty nine rembrandt van rien painter on the rovesgraft opposite the Dulhof, leaves two children rembrandt outlived his popularity although he was the greatest genius of his time and country and in fact one of the great geniuses of all time and all countries he was left to die alone and neglected by his fellow countrymen who had they foreseen the fame that the future held in store for him might have sought his humble lodging to honor him on bended knee the real man four one day rembrandt was employed in painting the portraits of a very rich family in amsterdam this was to be a group picture and as usual with him rembrandt was working hard to make it a success while he was painting someone opened the door of the room in which he was and brought in the dead body of a monkey the appearance of this funny little creature appealed to the artist at once he wanted to make a picture of it right away but the only thing on which he could make the drawing was the canvas on which he was painting the portraits of the rich family so rembrandt without hesitation painted the monkey in among their portraits they were very angry of course but in those days rembrandt was at the height of his career and he did not have to concern himself about how his customers felt this little incident whether it is strictly true or not illustrates one side of rembrandt's character when he was most successful he was carefree and independent it may have been this independence that brought him to his ruin although in all probability it was the indifference of his fellow citizens to his work the age in which rembrandt lived cared little for personalities there were no newspapers to record his doings and no one of his contemporaries cared enough about it to write down much about his life and work for these reasons the world has never known much about rembrandt the man we know that he was light-hearted headstrong and extravagant we know that he was neglected and died poor and feeble but we know little more than this although of late more reliable information concerning the life of this great painter has been found a man's faults are usually remembered when his virtues are forgotten for years it pleased biographers to represent rembrandt as a ne'er-do-well artist who could not take advantage of his opportunities we know now however that his faults were very human ones and that his merits greatly overbalanced them as a boy the artist was not an industrious scholar he looked upon reading and writing as rather troublesome and hardly worth the labor involved in learning them later he worked hard at his chosen career and the great number of pictures that he painted is sufficient evidence that he was by no means lazy probably rembrandt's greatest fault was his extravagance many a man can endure adversity with courage success is sometimes more difficult to bear hard luck often brings out the best in a man success may destroy it rembrandt was no exception he spent his money freely and like the grasshopper of the fable sang happily through the summer with no thought of the cold to come 
He liked to attend sales of works of art, and he gladly paid huge sums for any pictures that caught his fancy. It is said that the dealers came very soon to know his rash and reckless methods and would push the prices far up, confident that Rembrandt would meet them. At the same time, the artist liked to buy expensive jewels for his wife. He loved Saskia devotedly, and he wanted her to have everything of the finest. This manner of open-handed living naturally played havoc with his finances. When Saskia died, Rembrandt was heartbroken. His customers fell off and many troubles overwhelmed him. His friends helped him as much as possible, but money ran through his hands like water through a sieve, and he could not seem to control his expenditures. Then later, the death of his faithful Hendrickshire was the last blow to his happiness. For a few years, Rembrandt lingered, and then he too passed into the great silence. It is true that many of Rembrandt's troubles were self-inflicted, but he suffered enough to pay for his faults. At any rate, it is better to remember him as a great genius and a man worthy of respect and honor. Saskia van Ullenberg 5. Rembrandt's life was one of curious contrasts. During his early manhood, he was Amsterdam's leading portrait painter. These were years of happiness and carefree enjoyment of all the good things in life. But almost as suddenly as the painter stepped into the sunshine of success, he fell back into the shadows of adversity. One of the principal causes of his happiness was his wife, Saskia. Just as her entrance into his life coincided with the period of his greatest prosperity, so her death marked the beginning of his darker years. It would seem almost as though Saskia were his guardian angel, and that with her departure, Rembrandt's star began to descend. Saskia van Ullenburg was the ninth child of a wealthy patrician family of Friesland. She was born at Leeuwarden in 1612. Saskia became an orphan at an early age, and then she made her home with one or the other of her married sisters in turn, and finally with a cousin who lived in Amsterdam. It was at the house of this cousin that Rembrandt met her. Charmed by her youthful grace, he obtained permission to paint several portraits of her. Saskia at this time was a slender girl, rather small of stature, her features were very regular, and her eyes were of a beautiful brown shade, matching her soft reddish-brown hair. Her brilliant complexion was the envy of her less favored companions. The young painter soon showed that he took a special interest in Saskia. He bestowed great care on her portraits, and was in her company as much as possible. He himself was young, attractive, and good-looking, and we may be sure that Saskia's family did not frown upon his suit. They probably realized that Rembrandt would make an excellent husband for their ward. Rembrandt's father had died some time before this, and his mother gladly gave her consent to the marriage. Saskia and Rembrandt were made man and wife on June 22, 1634. Their life was very happy. Rembrandt's tastes were domestic, and he was never more pleased than when planning his wife's happiness. He centered his whole thought and energy upon her. Saskia, simple and loving, was governed in all things by his wishes. She was entirely devoted to him. Rembrandt liked to use Saskia as his model. Some of the better-known pictures for which she posed are her own portrait in the Castle Gallery, The Jewish Bride, painted in 1634, which is now in the Hermitage in Petrograd. Sophonisba receiving the cup of poison from Masinissa, 
in the Prado at Madrid, which is also dated 1634, and the famous painting of Saskia and himself, now in the Dresden Gallery, and done about 1635, which represents Rembrandt in military costume, seated at a table with a long glass of sparkling wine in his hand, and Saskia perched on his knee. At this period in his life, everything seemed to smile on Rembrandt. He was extravagant and did not know the meaning of the word save. Saskia's health had not as yet given cause for anxiety, but sad days were to come. Three children were lost in rapid succession. In 1641, the only child of theirs who survived was born. His name was Titus, after Saskia's sister, Tisha. But the young wife did not live long after her son was born. Her health broke down, and an etching made by Rembrandt about 1640 shows her with sharpened features, feverish eyes, and an expression of pensive melancholy. The happy days were over. Their brief union, begun in joy, was soon to end in tears. As if in prophecy, Rembrandt's anxieties were deepened by another sorrow, the death of his mother in 1640. Saskia's illness made rapid progress. Day after day she faded, and no longer did the artist have any delusions as to her recovery. Saskia made her will on June 5, 1642. She herself, however, had not lost all hope, for in this will she spoke of the children she might eventually have. She made Rembrandt trustee of her property for their son, Titus, showing her perfect trust in her husband. At the end of the document, she signed her name for the last time in tremulous, almost illegible characters, as if exhausted by the effort. It was only a few days later that Saskia passed away, on June 19, 1642. Rembrandt followed her coffin to the Udikirk, and then returned to his lonely house, where everything reminded him of his brief happiness, and where he was now alone with a child nine months old. He never seemed to recover from the blow. He went on working, and during the years to come, painted some of his greatest pictures. But seemingly, he had lost his grip on life, and from that time on, it was only a matter of a few years until he was overwhelmed by financial troubles and was driven to a humble lodging and his death. His Etchings 6. Many people, in considering Rembrandt, think of him only as a master painter. They overlook the fact that he was also the leading etcher of his time. This monograph will take up briefly this part of the great artist's work. It is related of Hokusai, the Japanese artist, that he once said that he hoped to live to be very old and that he might have time to learn to draw in such a way that every stroke of his pencil would be the expression of some living thing. That is exactly what Rembrandt managed to do in almost every one of his etchings. This is particularly true of the wonderful little etching of his mother. One critic says that on looking at this etching, he was compelled to close his eyes for a moment because of the tears that rose unbidden at sight of it. It would be hard to find anything more worthy of praise than this engraving. Every line expresses motherly kindness, sweetness, and thoughtfulness. Nothing could have been omitted. The etching is complete. So skillful was Rembrandt as an etcher that the nobleness of his ideas and the depth of his nature are apt to be overlooked. His engravings are pervaded by his big, artistic personality and by his own ennobling influence. 
the artist's soul spoke not only through the choice of subject but found expression in every single detail he showed a singular inventive power originality of conception and a great depth of understanding among rembrandt's etchings were many wonderfully lifelike portraits biblical subjects and landscapes an interesting thing about all this work is that most of it was done between the years 1639 and 1661. After this, Rembrandt seems to have renounced etching entirely. In these 20 years, he produced his greatest works, on every one of which appears the impress of the genius of the man. Rembrandt seems to have had a particular interest in making etchings of beggars. He delighted to draw them. These types were easy to find in Amsterdam at that time, but they may be called super beggars, for as a critic says, one is almost inclined to say that they cannot be beggars because the master's hand has endowed them with the warmth and splendor with which his artistic temperament clothed everything he looked at. Some of Rembrandt's etchings have brought great prices. In most cases, however, these prices varied because of the state of the plates. The points of difference between these states arise from the additions and changes made by Rembrandt on the plates. A single impression of one of his etchings, Rembrandt with the sword, was bought for about $10,000 in 1893. Another, Ephraim Bonus with Black Ring, brought about $9,750, while a third, the 100 Gilder print, fetched about $8,750. Some may find in Rembrandt's etching much that at first appears rough and uncouth. More apparent skill and ease in drawing may appear to have been shown by other etchers, but Rembrandt's work may justly be termed big, for it was conceived on a grand scale by a genius and master. The visitor to the Netherland art galleries should leave his notions of Greek and Italian art with his umbrella at the entrance. Holland is no place to talk about canons of proportion or types of beauty or ideals of any kind. The Dutch are now as they have always been, a people confronted by the realities of existence and see life, literature, and art as facts rather than as fancies. There has never been much romance about them, but on the contrary, a realization of the existence, a grasp of the truth and vitality of things, a keen penetration into the human problem. There never was any need for far-fetched fancies or ideals, the life about them interested and impressed them, and from the very beginning, the Dutch painters were painting the portrait of their own land and people. The result was an art that has a distinct quality of its own, just as distinct a quality as the art of Persia or Japan. You would not think of judging Japanese art by that of Italy. Why, then, think of Dutch art in any other terms than its own? Rembrandt and Raphael. To carry out the thought on illustration, it may be said that Rembrandt, the great Dutchman, was the very opposite of Raphael, the great Italian. He painted no allegories on Vatican walls, was not led away by Renaissance revivals of Greek form, dreamed no dreams of uniting pagan types with Christian ideals. Even technically, he was widely different from Raphael. 
He painted the easel pictures in oils, had no love whatever for Italian line and composition, did all his drawing and modeling by catches of shadow, and produced his most startling effects by the dramatic use of light and color. In all this, Rembrandt was merely reflecting his time and his people in his own ingenious way. He was emphatically true to the Dutch point of view, and today his art is full of truth, force, vitality, character. In fact, that word, character, is the keynote to all his work. It furthermore explains that aesthetic paradox sometimes applied to Rembrandt, the beauty of the ugly. For many of his people are ugly, if we regard them for the straightness of their foreheads and noses, the oval of their chins, or the proportions of their figures. But they are beautiful in their simplicity of presence, their unconscious sincerity, their profound truth of character. Rembrandt as a Leader no country in Europe produced a finer quality of art or a more learned school of craftsmen than Holland. There was a master genius there as elsewhere, and that genius was Rembrandt. He came when Holland had reached her highest pitch of power, came on the crest of the wave of which he and his fellow painters were the light and color. He has been acclaimed as her great painter, and he deserves that title, for of all the Dutch masters, he was practically the only one who was universal in his scope. His art alone, in its appeal, travels beyond the confines of the Netherlands. What he has to say is world-embracing and finds sympathetic response with all peoples. He is profound in his humanity, in his penetration into life problems, in his sympathy with his fellow man. The poor, mean-looking Amsterdam Jews that he portrayed in so many of his pictures are pathetic in their humility, their suffering, their patience. He was always taking for models the humble, the despised, the lowly, his heart seemed to go out to them. His Biblical Pictures And with such types, what a new interpretation he gave the Bible. How he realized Bible truth and brought it home to his own people by using the Jew of the quarter and the boar of the polder for models. Look at the Supper at Emmaus. Look for the intensity of the types rather than any regularity of form. What pathos in the pale, blue-lipped Christ with the phosphorescent glimmer of the tomb about the architecture at the back. What amazement in the disciples at the table. What fear in the boy bringing in the dish. This was perhaps the first time in art that the supper at Emmaus was made real and believable. The story was not only realized, but humanized. All of Rembrandt's biblical pictures were of this nature. Look again at the Manoah's prayer, or the Tobit and the Angel, or the Sacrifice of Abraham. They are Dutch types again, in Dutch costumes and surroundings. Rembrandt knew very well that the biblical characters were not Dutch in type, and that the people in the time of Christ did not dress like the boars and burghers of Holland. He purposely painted his own people in their native costumes, that he might the better and the more forcefully bring realization home to them. It was not, is not, affection. Study the Manoah and his wife, the Abraham, the family of Tobit on the doorstep, and you cannot find in all art people of more unconscious sincerity. Rembrandt believed in them. 
and that is why you and I believe in them today. Rembrandt as a Portrait Painter Rembrandt painted many biblical pictures, which are at present widely scattered throughout the European galleries. In all of them, he gave a new interpretation, a profound insight, a real meaning to scriptural story. In addition, he painted many figure compositions of a historical or mythological cast. But his great success, after all said and done, was with the portrait. His technical methods were well suited to the portrait, and he was unsurpassed in giving the truth of presence in his sitter. The quiet dignity of his Dutch burghers, their repose and simplicity, the complete absence of anything like pretense about them, made up Rembrandt's point of view. But to this he added a cunning hand and a technical skill that were wonderful. How superbly, with his catches of light and shade, he could draw an eye, a forehead, a nose, a chin. How instantly and inevitably he caught the salient feature and turned it by sharp emphasis into positive expression. What significance he could get out of an outstretched hand, a bent back, a bowed head. These were features wherewith he proclaimed the character of his sitter, the Portrait of an old lady in the National Gallery, London, has the flabby cheek, the trembling lip, the wrinkled brow of the aged. But you can also see that hers has been a life of suffering, and that the eyes have often been blinded with tears. On the contrary, the portrait of a man, the so-called Sobieski, at Petrograd, has the determination and force of the warrior. It has grip and firmness and courage about it. These are not only in the features, but Rembrandt has even put them in the brushwork, the manner of handling. Again, by way of contrast, the heads in the Lesson in Anatomy are put in calmly, serenely, inevitably just right. What intelligence, seriousness, and living presence they have. They are what might be called speaking likenesses, in the sense that all they lack of life is speech. And what can one say that will adequately describe the loveliness of mood, the eternal womanly, in the Portrait of Saskia at Castle? It is a wonder as a piece of color, but still more wonderful as a characterization of the painter's wife. Once more, for a further contrast, look at the Portrait of Copenhagen. He is supposed to be a writing master because he is sharpening a quill pen, but whatever his profession or pursuit, have you any difficulty in seeing here a dull-witted person of very limited intelligence, the very fatness of the forehead, so remarkable in its realistic rendering, the narrow eyes with their vacant stare, the pumpkin cheeks and head, the soft, lazy hands, seem to point to some clerk or pedagogue, who had not enough brains to know that he wanted more. Rembrandt was easily one of the great group of portrait painters, with Titian, Velasquez, and Holbein. And by this I mean no faint praise. It seems to be thought in some quarters that portraiture is somehow an inferior branch of painting, it is said to require no invention or imagination, but nothing could be more mistaken than such an idea. When we speak of Rembrandt, Titian, 
Velasquez, and Holbein. We are speaking of the world's great masters, and perhaps their most satisfactory masterpieces are their portraits. A painter who can adequately portray his fellow man, as Rembrandt did, has practically said the last word in art. That Rembrandt had this gift and accomplishment is evidenced by the high esteem in which his work is held by painters even to this day. His Technical Method There was no trick about Rembrandt's painting. He was no slave to a particular color, canvas, or brush. He painted at times with the palette knife, at other times with his thumb. He kneaded the surface, plowed through it when it was wet, did almost anything to get effects by catches of light and shade, whereby he drew and modeled. But none of these small peculiarities explains his technical success. His methods were sound enough, and for the most part were known before his day, but he applied them better and increased their carrying power. He has been called the master of light and shade, and so indeed he was, within a limited range. It was the same light and shade known to Leonardo, Giorgione, and Caravaggio. And probably Rembrandt got it from pictures of the Neapolitan school, though he was never in Italy. But Rembrandt improved upon the Italian method of using shadow. He made it transparent, enveloping, mysterious, and its antithesis, light, he made penetrating and dramatic by putting it in sharp contrast. Out of the two, he got wonderful effects. In doing the portrait head, for instance, he threw his highest light on the collar, the nose, the chin, the forehead. This high light ran off quickly into half light and then into shadow, so that by the time the ear or the side of the neck was reached, dark, even black notes were used. The decrease was rapid, in fact, often violent, but this only served to focus the attention more keenly upon the dominant features of the face. The result was what has been called forced, but it was very effective. It was the same effect that one sees today at the opera, when the chief actor is in the spotlight and the rest of the stage is in gloom. The Night Watch but this violent focusing of light had its limitations even in Rembrandt's hands. The night watch exemplifies them. This was to be a portrait group of the 16 members of the Franz Banning Cock Shooting Company. The members wanted their portraits painted in a group, after the manner of the time, and Rembrandt conceived the idea of painting the portraits and making a stirring picture of the company coming out of its quarters at one and the same time. It was an ambitious scheme and not wholly successful because here came the limitations of his method. He painted 16 portraits with his spotlight illumination, each one being completed under its own light. The picture lacked that one light which should have bound together the whole company. As a result, there were 16 separate portraits on the one canvas held together in measure by shadow, color, and atmosphere, but spotty in the lighting. The French writers of the 18th century could not understand the lighting and were led to think the picture represented a night scene. They called it the Ronde de Nuit, and later Sir Joshua Reynolds translated this into Night Watch. But nothing is more certain than that Rembrandt intended it for a day scene in full sunlight. It was simply his arbitrary way of handling light that made a night effect out of daylight. That is about the only criticism that can be lodged against the night watch. 
Light and color have both been sacrificed to shadow, but when that is conceded, the picture still remains a marvel of color, shadow, and atmosphere, and a wonder of life and action. The movement, the bustle of it, is superb. The captain and his lieutenant in the foreground are in full light, but back of them and around them, emerging out of the gloom, are nebulous heads, flashing casks, plumes, halberds, guns, drums, dogs, street urchins, all the belongings of a militia company on parade. They are not only wonderful in their action, but in their mystery of appearance, coming out of shadow depths into light. Of course, the picture was not entirely satisfactory to the sixteen. They had bargained for their portraits, and little knew then how cheaply they were purchasing immortality. Those in the background complained that they were not sufficiently spotlighted, not treated with sufficient importance, in fact, subordinated to those in the front row. But the picture, as a picture, is certainly successful, is a great favorite with all art lovers, and in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, where it now hangs, it is considered one of the world's great masterpieces. Truer lighting, that is, truer to the facts of general illumination, is seen in the earlier Lesson in Anatomy and the later Syndics of the Cloth Hall. But neither picture has the fascination nor the imagination of the Night Watch. Rembrandt's Styles Rembrandt's work is usually divided into three different periods. At first, his method of handling was calm, measured, even at times smooth. His light and color were gray, as also his backgrounds. This period has been called his gray period. The Lesson in Anatomy, the Sacrifice of Abraham, the Coppenol, the Elizabeth Bass, the Old Lady of the National Gallery London, all illustrate this early manner. It was gradually encroached upon and finally superseded by a fuller, freer handling of the brush, with much warmer color and light, tending toward reddish gold. This has been called his golden period, and marks the midday of his career. The beautiful Saskia at Castle and the so-called Sobieski at Petrograd illustrate the beginning of this period, the changing from gray to warmer notes of red, yellow, and gold. The woman with the pink at Castle the Minoa's Prayer at Dresden, the Night Watch, were done further along in this middle period. It was the time when Rembrandt was in his full strength, saw comprehensively, handled a full palette of color, and was almost infallibly accurate with his hand. In his third and last period, Rembrandt's work became rather hot and foxy in color, dark in illumination, kneaded and thumbed in the surface, and sometimes uncertain in drawing. He was expanding into a larger view and vision up to the last, seeing objects in their broader relations and proportions rather than in their surfaces. Toward the close, he often slurred the surfaces, neglected textual qualities, and threw his whole force into the rendering of mass in relation to light, air, and color. The pictures of this period are hard for the beginner in art to understand because he is misled by the roughness of the surfaces, the messy state of the pigments, the apparent fumbling, kneading, rubbing out, and amending of the brushwork. But as we have said, Rembrandt was purposely slurring surface truths for the greater truths of bulk, 
weight, and general relationship. The best example of this late work among our illustrations is the Syndix of the Cloth Hall in the Rijksmuseum Amsterdam. In it, Rembrandt went back to his early method of lighting, but continued with his late manner of handling and coloring. It is superbly broad in vision, absolute in its truth to life, and convincing in its incident. The cloth merchants are seated about a table, perhaps figuring up their year's balance, when someone opens the door to enter, and they all look up to see the incomer. Nothing could be simpler, more direct, or truer. Rembrandt never painted anything better, for here he completely fulfilled expectations. Many of his later canvases he could not complete, the Blessing of Jacob at Castle, for instance. He probably gave up in despair, or was working upon at the time of his death. He had reached a pitch in his career when he saw and strove for things that his hand or brush could not realize or pin down to canvas. That is the great stone wall that even genius encounters and cannot surmount. The Master's Life The story of Rembrandt's career is recited elsewhere in this number of The Mentor, but it may be said here that it was not different from that of many other painters. He came up to Amsterdam from the outlying country and achieved celebrity at an early age. Praise and pay and pupils poured in upon him. He married the beautiful Saskia and was happy. But as he expanded in vision and methods, he went beyond the understanding and the appreciation of his public. His pupils, such as Bull and Flink, who had a more commonplace point of view and a smoother, prettier style of painting, outdid him in public favor. The public began to desert him. The fair Saskia died. The great master fell upon evil days, and finally passed out in penury and want, evidently neglected and possibly forgotten by the age and people he had done so much to glorify. The record of his death in the burial book of the Westerkirk, Amsterdam, is pathetic in its meagerness. Tuesday, 8th October, 1669, Rembrandt van Rijn, painter on the Roosgraft, opposite the Doolhof, leaves two children. It almost looks as though he were identified only by the squalid quarters in which he died. And this was Rembrandt, the greatest master north of the Alps, and a genius of almost Shakespearean quality. Many pictures attributed to him. A fine, gravier reproduction of this painting appears in The Mentor, number 28. It seems that not only was Rembrandt and his art misunderstood in his own time, but that he is still misunderstood at the present time. This is in measure due to many pictures which are mistakenly attributed to him. One need not be an expert to find it strange that of 20 pupils of Rembrandt, who painted more or less in his style, there remain hardly 20 pictures apiece, and some of them not even one. What paralyzed their hands or destroyed their works? What became of their pictures? You begin to get a glimmer of light when you understand that to Rembrandt there are assigned a thousand or fifteen hundred examples, that these are painted in fifteen or twenty different styles, though all superficially resembling Rembrandt's style. 
Almost everything that is Rembrandt-esque, or even casually resembles Rembrandt, has been signed up and sold as his since the master came back to popular favor. The name is one that now brings thousands of dollars in the auction room, and what wonder that it is often misused. These Rembrandt-esque pictures were done by other hands than his, our pupils' works, or schoolwork, or copies, or in a few cases, forgeries. Rembrandt's work has never been critically studied as that of Leonardo or Giorgione. Strange again, is it not, that Leonardo and Giorgione, in the final analysis, should have less than a dozen pictures apiece left to them, while Rembrandt should still be given his thousand? Northern art has not had a critical searchlight turned upon it, as had Italian art 30 years ago. When it does, the present catalog of Rembrandt's will crumble. In the meantime, the art student would better accept Rembrandt only in his best authenticated works, such, for instance, as are reproduced in this number of The Mentor. Half of the so-called Rembrandts in the European galleries are now to be taken with a grain of salt. They may be, and often are, exceedingly good pictures, but they are not by Rembrandt. End of chapter 2 Recording by Myra Parker